to Find Laws Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temi. I'm happy to be back in the, what is it, back in the saddle? Sure. I'm like never like the Aerosmith song. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm <laughs> doing a great job, and uh, I'm joined by Joe Fawbush. <laughs> you are doing a great job, Laura. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. It, it would be better from a horse, but. <laughs> I mean, our listeners don't know that I'm not sitting on a horse right now, like yeah. the guy in the Old Spice commercial. Um, how's everybody doing? Uh. <laughs> oh, great. Everyone's having a wonderful, relaxing I, summer. It's been I'm doing, great. I'm doing fantastic. I'm kidding. I'm excited to talk about some real heady, complex stuff that isn't going to piss anyone off at all. <laughs> right, right, right. That's always our goal. I mean, we do have what I think is an interesting topic today, and I'm not just saying that because I pitched the episode. But it's it's a it's a big topic when it comes to constitutional law and sort of the, the foundations of the government here in the United States. I guess I'll start with there's this idea that floats around that the United States is a, quote, Christian nation. But from a legal standpoint, that's not really true. And instead, we have the First Amendment, which explicitly prohibits laws establishing a national religion, and it prohibits laws that burden religious practice. But more on that later. First, it's time for me to once again become Laura Temme, time-traveling lawyer, to talk about the history of government in the United States and how it interacted with religion. Today, we're talking about the separation of church and state. For those of you at home who want to make it extra interesting you can play a drinking game however many times we mention <laughs> hamilton the musical you have to take a drink <laughs> i'm gonna make sure everybody loses this game to sobriety. <laughs> you know joe you might be shocked to learn that i don't have a single reference to oh. hamilton or the musical in my notes oh. i was trying to i was trying to to keep it keep it focused this time but i'm sure I'm sure I could improv Throw, throw one best. in there for me. <laughs> it's more fun when they're organic anyway. <laughs> we'll go in the way, way back machine here. Before the creation of the Constitution, the American colonists struggled to kind of find the right balance between free religious expression and how they wanted to govern this new country they were starting. In some colonies like Virginia, they did have an established church. Others opted for religious freedom. And when the Constitution was first drafted, it actually didn't include the religious freedom protections that we associate with, you know, the foundations of the United States today. However, several states refused to ratify the new Constitution until Congress promised to add a Bill of Rights that addressed freedom of religion, freedom of the press, and freedom of speech, which we, yeah, we sort of almost take for granted today that it was just always a thing. So the phrase separation of church and state is often attributed to Thomas Jefferson, who wrote in an 1802 letter to the Danbury Baptist Association that the First Amendment built a, quote, wall of separation between the church and state. Now, specifically, he was referring to the First Amendment's Establishment Clause, but the first public figure to use this phrase was actually Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island, of all places. I just love, it's like, the teeniest little place. And he, like, was the first person to use this phrase that we use so often now in um, 
in constitutional law. Said, hey, read my read my chatta. <laughs> exactly. I don't know what his accent would have been. Rhode Island was actually a troublemaker back then. They uh they, it was, they wanted yeah. to cause problems. Yeah. Don't don't mess with Rhode Island. Well and interestingly, Williams believed that the entanglement of government and religion would actually corrupt the church. And therefore he advocated for a and I just find this really funny to imagine he advocated for a wall or hedge of separation. <laughs> <laughs> just imagining like this really little lovely little manicured hedge between the garden of the church and the wilderness of the world, as he put it. And so th- this kind of leads me to something that I think we, we all wanted to talk about is this question of whether the founding fathers were religious. And some of them were, but others not so much because, and let's face it, all of these guys were white and most of them came from Judeo-Christian backgrounds. So they're all operating in that same sort of world. And some of them probably only attended church to satisfy their own parents' uh, (laughs) guilt from their own parents. Right, Right, exactly. (laughs) Not that that's what everyone does. No, 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 of course not. But an idea I wanted to talk about on the show here is that a large number of the founders subscribed to this intellectual movement called deism. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, have you guys heard of this? Yes. Yeah. I'll admit it's a bit of a convoluted worldview in my opinion, but it is really interesting. And it's this sort of rejection of Orthodox Christianity that proposed that human reason was all that was needed to solve society's problems. It generally rejects the idea that God intervenes in the lives of humans or that a person can have a personal relationship with God. And non-Trinitarian as well essentially like they don't they don't believe that Jesus was like the son of god so like a christianity that doesn't believe in Jesus's divinity even though they think he was cool <laughs> yeah they essentially believed that that there was a single creator god that created the world and then dipped <laughs> to yeah. leaving it to operate under natural law, meaning that there was no need for prayer, prophets, ceremonies, or other rituals that we find in organized religion. And several prominent figures of the time subscribed to this idea, including George Washington, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and James Monroe. And we see this idea kind of play out in the creation of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, where the founders didn't outright reject religion, kind of like the French did after their revolution, but it sort of keeps religion at arm's length. And I I do want to mention, we're talking about this because this very specifically influenced the founders, not just with separation of church and state, but with a whole host of ideas that they put into the Constitution, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, these ideas of deism came out of the Enlightenment movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, for example, said that Isaac Newton and John Locke were two of the greatest men who ever lived, Mm -hmm. maybe the greatest men who ever lived. So he really ascribed to a worldview that came directly from Isaac Newton's work. That's the the clockmaker theory that he called it about kind of using reason and having the world function the way it does. You know, this was all new information at the time. And same with John Locke. A lot of our property law comes from those that philosophy. You know, I remember my very first assignment in law school, I went from a liberal arts education reading philosophy of John Locke to (laughs) reading John Locke in a property textbook. And I was like, all right, okay. I did the same thing going from an from an economics undergrad to (laughs) to law school. Yeah. I'm a big enlightenment fan myself. 
You know, big ups to these guys. Um, <laughs> Super great. But can you imagine just how exhaustingly annoying every like college class would be during this time period? <laughs> Where dudes are just talking about like reason and logic, and they just and like yo, there goes Jefferson the windbag again. <laughs> There'd just be so many dudes just prattling on and on. Yeah, I just had to get that out <laughs> no, there. That, yeah, that is that is a very. That is a very fair point. I mean, yeah, that's why I wanted to point out up top that all of this stuff was, yeah, was written by a bunch of white guys. And that's important to keep in mind when we're thinking about the sort of legal foundations of of the country. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, both under this idea, felt that it was improper for a government to support a particular religion or religion in general, arguing that citizens should not be compelled to support primarily through taxes, uh, a faith that they didn't follow. And this idea was very much supported by people who practiced faiths other than the Anglican Church, which was the Virginia colony's official religion. And so these were, at the time, your Baptists, Presbyterians, Quakers, people who left Europe to escape religious persecution, only to find themselves persecuted in the colonies as well. And they really weren't alone. Many of the colonists who settled in America feared that entangling government and religion would lead to the same religious wars they'd seen all over Europe in the previous centuries. And now it's time for Why Holy Wars Were Bad with Joe Fawbush. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote that nice. in my notes and I've been laughing about it all <clears throat> week, so I had to just say it on the show. <laughs> no, that is, that is fantastic. I will come <laughs> here with my hot take that, uh, that holy wars are bad. Uh, I know you come... <laughs> To me for the hottest newest takes i do <laughs> mostly i want to give a little bit of background because in the previous centuries in europe where all of these guys who wrote the constitution came from usually an anglo-saxon background all of education at that time kind of took place with european focus and so starting with the protestant reformation there was really a lot of violence and a lot of horrible wars. There was the Thirty Years' War. There was the English Civil War. These were the wars that pitted Protestants against Catholics. Uh, and I mean, there was a lot of other stuff going on. It was a very complicated and horrible time in European history. The end result was that all you had to do was take a look back a century previously from when you were writing the Constitution in 1787 and say, we don't want that to happen again. It's like mm -hmm. if you were writing a new constitution today, you would say, you know, I don't think that whole Nazi thing worked out very well. How can we guard against that? Right. And so that was kind of their viewpoint of it at the time. So that's the reason why they were really focused on the separation of church and state. It wasn't that they cared about the cultural impact of Christianity like you mentioned, Laura, mm -hmm. a lot of them were not necessarily Christian or took a alternative view of Christianity, but they understood that, you know, Christianity was a part of the culture. But what they didn't want to have happen was the state-sponsored violence. So all of the Bill of Rights are really geared toward this strong federal government controlling people's lives in ways that ended really, really badly in Europe. So that was kind of the focus of both the Enlightenment movement was getting away from this 
utter domination by the Catholic Church mainly, and also this real focus on reason and personal liberty and God-given rights even. So it, this isn't an anti-religion thing. I mean, they're not atheists. They're not saying religion is bad. But what they are saying is that attaching a religion to a state inevitably leads to horrific violence. Uh, and that had been demonstrated over and over again in the previous centuries. And so I think personally that there's a reason why that one was the first one that they included. Not just because of Rhode Island, but also because... <laughs> Right. It's such an interesting time for religion in America at that time. You know, the Puritans came uh, and they were trying to leave. They were trying to escape religious persecution. But of course, the Puritans did not believe in freedom of religion. They just wanted their religion to be dominant. And so, you know, if you're Thomas Jefferson, you can look back and you can say, OK, the Anglican Church controls Virginia. You know, we had people come trying to set up uh Puritan state. And so even at that time, there was a diversity of religion. Obviously, mm -hmm. it wasn't as diverse as we have today. But there were definitely major differences among the states and among the people. There were Quakers, there were, but like you mentioned, there were all sorts of different religions. And so the founders said, let's guard against any holy wars, because they agreed with my hot take that holy wars are bad. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that concludes why holy wars are bad. And, you know, speaking of the Crusades, something that I wanted to bring up, because I know it, it can get a little complicated when we're talking about the separation of church and state, because that phrase is used so often, but the, that phrase itself is not found in the Constitution. And so sometimes people will point to that and, and say, like, well, it's not actually in the Constitution, so is it that important? But something that often comes up as a counterpoint is this treaty that was signed by John Adams in 1797, I think the Treaty of Tripoli, which Tripoli today is, is Libya. And this was a treaty that was unanimously ratified by the United States Senate, and part of it states that the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. And it's well established that that sentence was included to assure um, Muslims living in Tripoli that when they were entering this agreement of peace and friendship with the United States, that they were dealing with a government separate from the Christian nations that took part in the Crusades. That is actually really interesting, and I I did not I did not know that. I thought that was pretty interesting. <laughs> However, I think that statement was omitted in the second version of that treaty. Yeah, the interesting thing is it was it was omitted in the translation when they translated it into Arabic. Okay. It, it seems that people are still kind of arguing over that. It I don't know if it was I'll be honest with you listeners, I didn't have time to research it as much as I wanted to. This is now a Barbary Wars podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I would <laughs> I mean, I've tried to turn this podcast into other things. I've tried to make it true crime. We've tried to make it celebrity gossip. So why not hit the Barbary Wars next? But yeah, so I and I don't so I'm not sure. It, it seemed to me that that most historians fall on the side that it was sort of an oversight that it was omitted from this other translation of the treaty. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting little tidbit nonetheless. Also, despite the fact of separation of church and state being a, you know, figment of the uh, liberal imagination. <laughs> um, I use figment in quotation marks there. 
Thomas Jefferson himself did coin the term in a letter to to a group of uh, Baptists who were worried about persecution or like being dominated by another denomination. I cannot remember which. I, ha- I have the letter. I have the passage. Should I read it like out of a Ken Burns documentary? Yes, please. Yes. Oh wait, do, we don't have ten hours though. Uh, I'm just kidding. I no no judgment to Ken Burns. Actually, he does really great work. <laughs> I don't know what Thomas Jefferson's voice sounds like, so I'm just gonna make one up. Okay. I'm so excited right now. <laughs> Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people, which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation in behalf the rights of conscience, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore to man all his natural rights, convinced he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. Yay, that was great. You you brought a very manly approach to Thomas (laughs) Jefferson. I was was expecting more of a shy, quiet, academic voice. That was a very... That was like Thomas Jefferson as Batman, which I love. I love it. Thomas Jefferson played by Charlton Heston. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad that you read that to us, Andy, because I didn't realize that that letter included the opening of the First Amendment. The First Amendment begins with Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And we've talked about this on previous episodes that that's sort of two distinct ideas that are now referred to as the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. And the Establishment Clause is sort of the embodiment of this separation of church and state idea. I did want to talk a bit about the first time that this idea was really addressed by the Supreme Court, which wasn't until after World War II, and that's Everson versus Board of Education. And if, if, as I kind of go through the facts of this case, some of it might sound familiar. The Establishment Clause almost always seems to come up to the Supreme Court when it comes to schools and funding for schools and things like that. So in the 1940s, a New Jersey law allowed school districts to create their own rules and contracts for transporting children to and from their schools. And the Ewing, New Jersey Township Board of Education created a program where it would reimburse parents for the cost of sending their kids to school on public buses, including private schools. And it just so happened that 96% of the private schools in the township were Catholic parochial schools. So Arch Everson, a taxpayer in Ewing, filed a a lawsuit arguing that reimbursing parents who sent their kids to religious schools violated the Establishment Clause. In a 5-4 to decision, the court held that the New Jersey law did not violate the First Amendment because it didn't directly support religious schools. And we've seen this type of reasoning again and again, where the government funds can be given to parents to do with what they choose. But this is where the separation of church and state becomes part of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence. The court discusses Jefferson's wall of separation idea. One of the quotes from the justices where the First Amendment has erected a wall between church and state and that wall must be kept high and impregnable. We could not approve the slightest breach. However, there were several justices who disagreed with this conclusion, arguing that the First Amendment forbids 
every form of public aid or support for religion. And then there were some that thought it should just be a little hedge and not right, a right, a, a nice <laughs> right. little, a nice little manicured hedge. I just the hedge makes me laugh. I don't know what. Yeah. <laughs> it's the most proper English garden thing that I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> We saw this same conclusion just a couple years ago in Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue, where the Supreme Court upheld a Montana law that gave tax credits for donations people made to scholarship funds for private schools, even though most of those funds went to religious schools. So, uh, yeah, I guess all of that to say that the the separation of church and state is complicated. The Establishment Clause is complicated. <laughs> in conclusion... In conclusion, this is all I got. Actually, something I wanted to bring up is that even as presidents, Jefferson and Madison had a hard time keeping religion and government separate. Madison issued proclamations for religious fasts. Jefferson sent religious ministers to convert Native Americans, which is a whole separate issue that we could do an entire episode on. That Yeah, some laws may have been broken then. The, the U.S. government has never done a good job of separating church and state when it comes to relations with Native tribes. That is, I mean, that has been it's good to bring up, though, just because I think sometimes it's easy for us on a podcast to look back at Jefferson and the founders and say, this is what had happened. It came from the Enlightenment and they believed these certain things. But of course, they were real people and mm -hmm. they were three dimensional people who may have espoused a belief, but not always lived up to that belief themselves. They may have held conflicting thoughts like a lot of us do. And there were a lot of different people with a lot of different viewpoints uh, back then, just just as today. Yeah, and they had to make compromises for political purposes, too. Absolutely, yeah. Which we still see, yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention was the facts of Everson that you just went over should sound really familiar to anybody who's been paying attention to recent Supreme Court decisions. We won't rehash what, what the Supreme Court just did. Can I talk about the football coach for the third time on this podcast? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's definitely still what the court is wrestling with is how do we religion away from official government actions while still allowing people to live their beliefs and there is some inherent conflict there you know regardless mm -hmm. of whether you're religious or not or whatever you know political philosophy you ascribe to when you have people of different religious beliefs sometimes vastly different religious beliefs there's going to be some some conflict with how to govern that situation and the court is definitely still wrestling with that and as we've talked about before they're definitely emphasizing the free exercise portion of the First Amendment. They're really trying to strengthen that. They're really concerned about not having the government interfere with people's right to live their beliefs and, and do what they want to do according to their religious doctrines and tenets. So that's kind of where we are today. It's also really fun to talk about Jefferson and all of the founding fathers. And it's it, it helps too, because, you know, this is all a conversation that people have been having for a long time. Like we mentioned with the wars of religion in Europe, the English Civil War, these all influenced the founders and what the founders were dealing with at that time is still influencing us today. So it's something that we've had to deal with for 500 years as a society. So, well, longer than that even, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, you know, directly. I do wonder if the founders hoped that we would have it sorted out by now. I'm not sure. Like, would they, do, would they be disappointed in us? I'm not sure. Once again, <laughs> they'd, be, they'd be too busy being like having their brains melted by looking at a smartphone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> that's true. I suppose, yeah, if they if they came to the future, they'd have bigger problems. For what it's worth, I don't think they would, actually. Because they, they were a strange blend of idealists and cynics, yeah. right? I mean, because mm-hmm. they, mm-hmm. they had this very lofty goal for the country, but they didn't always have lofty ideas about people. They they tried to, to guard against bad behavior every chance that they got. So I don't know. I, th- I think they'd be cool with us. But you know, if I see Hamilton, I might smack him in the back of the head. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There's my Hamilton reference for you. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody ends on a drink. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws, Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com. <laughs>